Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and thanks to all my listeners on iHeartRadio, Waxy AM, FM here in Vero Beach, and all over the world who listen to my podcast, you make this my favorite time of the day, as do the incredible guests that I get to have on. And I was just on Rhett Palmer's show just before this, and, you know, it's just so much fun to be around people who love what they're doing And that's what this is all about for me. It is my favorite time of the day. And I also get to see Sean, my favorite producer. Well, thank you so much, Laura. And I always enjoy this show. I really do. Well, thank you. It's great to have you here. One of these days, I'm going to get to hear you sing with your band. Okay, maybe not sing, but I'll play with them. Okay, all right. Play is good. I like play. (laughs) Play works. All right. right. Um, So today we have a, a dear friend of mine who is one of those people that whenever you're around her, you just go to yourself, this woman has more knowledge than I can ever imagine and is so astute, is so amazing, and asks really, really great questions. So I love people who ask great questions. And she's a geek like me, but beyond being a geek, she is the founder of an incredible company based out of San Diego called Sazmax. And... um, Have you heard of the cloud, everybody? You know, software as a service, bringing everything to the cloud. You've probably all heard about cybersecurity issues, all sorts of stuff like that. I have my friend Dina Moskowitz on the show with me today. She's calling in from San Diego. And we are going to be talking about what it takes to be the CEO of a tech company today, how you go about getting venture capital funding, what it means to create your own blue ocean strategy. Everybody knows I'm a big fan of that. Dina has created a company that is doing something that has never been done before. And she's loving it. And we're going to be talking about it. So Dina, welcome to the show. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you too. And you sound really, really um, far away and hollow. Are we on speaker with you or... You know, I think our connection is not the best. You sound far away as well. Okay. All right. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to try to get this a little bit better. So why don't you just talk a a few minutes. Tell us how you got started as an entrepreneur, Dina. Sure. Um, I got started, well, let's see. It goes way back to the days of uh, After college, I went into the investment banking world, and from there, I ended up being amidst the dot-com era and uh, was experiencing a lot of young people jumping into technology, not knowing a lot about the Internet, but yet the dot-com boom was just going crazy. And so from that, I turned my investment banking experience into a business plan consulting business and started working with a lot of these startup companies that were all moving into technology. And uh, so that's really at the beginning in the heart of it. I always had a, um, an entrepreneurial sort of edge and, and uh, spark to my personality was always getting into new things like that. And so the opportunity to first be a consultant or advisor to a lot of startup companies without taking the risk myself, then prepared me to be able to jump in and and start my own technology company. 
Well, you know, it's kind of crazy. Just listening to the kind of companies you were involved with and the work you were doing, you've always been a person who wasn't willing to go where everybody else was going. You know, a woman as an investment banker was not that common. The work that you've been doing with startups, that's not something that a lot of other women are doing either. So what do you think it is about your personality that makes you love that kind of challenge? You know, it's a good question. Um, I'm in a lot of uh, groups where we promote women in technology and IT. And I do that because I, I realize being in the industry how few women rise up in the ranks of leadership within technology and IT. But from my perspective, I just went for it. It wasn't a gender thing. It wasn't, um, it was just, you know, I was just doing what I felt I needed to do based upon the opportunities that I saw out there and that were presented to me and just sort of evolved within my path. So I wouldn't say there was a gender thing. I would say there were certain gender biases along the way that maybe made things more difficult. And I have many conversations and many incidents I could share on that front. But as far as who I am, I never view myself as being my, my uh, you know, five foot one uh, persona, the, the petite size that I am. I just view myself as this person who's, you know, genderless when I'm doing business and, uh, you know, just focus on what I'm working on. You know, it's really funny that you say that because people have asked me a similar question to what I asked you. And I never thought of myself as a woman in tech. I just thought of myself as I'm in tech. Exactly. It's just who I am was this is something I wanted to do. And I never thought about, oh, you know, I'm a woman with a tech company. and, And back 20 years ago when I, well, 22 years ago when I started it, it wasn't something I thought about, you know, even though there were very few of them, just like in college when I was a baseball sports information director and I was traveling all over the country with a division one baseball teams going out and hanging out in locker rooms. Never thought about that. I'm a woman doing it. I was just me doing it. <laughs> so hmm, that that's great. And I think, you know, also, you know, I went to, I right after college and I went into the investment banking world, it was more dominated by, you know, by men in general. And I think if you're just used to being in that environment from the beginning of your career, you probably don't, ident- you know, you probably don't recognize it as much. It's just part of the environment that you, you start in. Yeah, I, I would agree with you tremendously. What do you think has been for you one of the biggest challenges in your career? Has there been something that keeps resurfacing for you, like lessons that you keep learning? Gosh, that's a great question. You know, one of those things that um, it it really actually could be a bit of a female uh, personality side to me is that I, while I'm a risk taker, I like to have all my I's dotted and T's crossed and am not a uh, good, uh, I'm, I'm not a good faker or over promoter unless I believe things myself. So whereas many times in a entrepreneurial or leadership role where you have to uh, lead your team, lead your clients, lead your investors toward the right path and, and have them follow your vision, 
I sometimes if if I don't feel authentic about it, you know, I wear my uh, I I wear it all right out there on my face, and so uh, sometimes that could you know has potentially gotten in my way uh, based upon either insecurities or not being a hundred percent sure of, of of certain things. Does that make sense? It it does, and the funny part is that's not what I know of you. Right. <laughs> from from the outside looking in, I know a woman who takes great risks. Yeah, you may have your I's dotted and your T's crossed, but in a lot of cases, you're stepping out before they're all dotted and crossed so that you can see what's going to develop from it. So that's interesting, your perspective and from an outside perspective looking at you and the, and all the things that you've achieved. Interesting. And I, I guess that's true. I guess maybe that's a um, where I know and I'm confident of things that are going to be achieved and accomplished. I can speak about them with confidence, whereas they may not be yet completed or ready. And so that probably is the difference is that I wouldn't be pushing those things forward if I didn't truly know that it was uh, going to happen. Have you had any major failures or something that you feel has been a failure for yourself? Oh, gosh, you know, um, I am my worst critic. And people always say that to me is that stop being so self-critical. And so it's while I am a most of the time a glass always full person, I'm always looking at what I could have done better or what I didn't do enough of. And so uh, failures, you know, I'd say almost every day I have failures, um, but uh, they, they, I use that to motivate me and just keep me going forward beyond. Does that make sense? It, it does. And a number of my listeners get stopped by failure. They feel that failure is a bad thing, even though, you know, you read all this stuff saying because you fail, that's what makes success happen even bigger. What's uh, a tip that you could share with my listeners for when something is, say, a failure or not going the way you needed to to recover from that and go further? So I think it's a couple of things. One is being completely honest with yourself. If you identify that there's something that's failing, um, identify that it is failing first and acknowledge it and and. Uh, because you really need to, otherwise you're just going to keep running in the wrong direction. And once you recognize it, don't think there's absolutely no no solution. Think about, okay, how can I get around this failure, or how can I, um, what what can I do to pivot so that I can take everything that I have been doing and turn it into a an opportunity again. And I would say that's one of the things that I've been very good at doing throughout my career. I would agree with that <laughs> tremendously <laughs> with you and your career. Now, let's see, you, um, were, your company was recently described by the VAR guy, who, uh, for those of us in the geek world, the VAR guy is the guy that you want talking about your business. He says, you're the match.com for the business cloud, um, and it is, it's your mission to make selling, finding, and buying cloud software applications easy. And that is not something that's ever been done before. And your tips about failure and 
moving forward and finding something good in it, I think are, are really great because how can you be out there on the cutting edge, on the bleeding edge of business mm-hmm. without that philosophy that you have? I, I don't know how you, right. you can do that, Dina. So, Right. Well, I think you also have to put on some blinders because if you have a vision and you have a an, an idea and a concept that has never been done before, you will oftentimes face a lot of resistance from the status quo. And oftentimes, you know, people will say, you know, we, we're, we're running this business now and we're doing it very successfully, but people still say this is a good idea. They don't say what a great business. And so it's, you know, you have to keep your, keep focused and keep sort of, don't allow too much peripheral Okay, and we're going to go into commercial break, and we're going to talk more about that when we come back with Dina Moskowitz. Welcome back, everyone. And we are here with Dina Moskowitz, serial entrepreneur, New Yorker turned San Diegan. I don't know how you could possibly do that, although I'm a New Yorker turned Floridian. Um, she's the founder and CEO of Sazmax Corps. She has been leading and or consulting to cloud-based and other technology companies throughout her career. Dina, what I love about the stuff you're doing today, and we talked about it in a little bit before, was you're leading the way for people to in their businesses to easily find cloud-based software-as-a-service applications. What, for my listeners, what exactly is SaaS? <laughs> Great. Good question. So SaaS is another word for software-as-a-service which is another word for business cloud software. And what business cloud software means is actually the software that we use by logging on to the Internet and using a browser. So whereas historically most people remember getting a disk or a CD and plugging it into your own machine and turning it on, and that's where it boots up and goes, uh, with software as a service, that doesn't happen anymore. And as most of us are used to logging into Gmail or an an online account or QuickBooks Online or uh, uh, some sort of um, online banking, that is all being served up as software as a service, which is the big differentiator. It's now that software is available anywhere in the world that you can log in. As long as you have access to your username and password, the software company is managing and holding your data so that it can be accessed by any machine online. You know, when I had my tech company, we had more of the install a piece of software kind of philosophy. And I don't know whether the world was more secure back then or not, but I know for a fact that today one of the biggest fears of people of moving everything to the cloud is, number one, what if your internet goes down? You have no way of accessing your software. But more than that, people are afraid that they're going to get hacked. So is it really secure? I know that's a question a lot of my listeners are asking. Is it really secure to go to these cloud-based applications? It is, it is a big question that everyone's asking. And I would say that at this point in time, your data, which is held by these other software companies, is relatively secure. These companies are in business to ensure that their clients are mean, are, are receiving very well-protected, secure um, service from them. 
And so in a way, you can look at it as you have a, a software company who their own, uh, their own livelihood is dependent on ensuring that they provide you not only with a good software, but that your data is continually being updated or, or backed up and protected and encrypted because otherwise they wouldn't be in business either. So uh, whereas traditionally if you had to maintain your own software and your own backups and your machine uh, crashed, uh, you have a bigger risk of losing all that data or having that data be picked up and stolen with your machine than if you have a major company who is in the business of caring about your data to uh, to trust and work with. Now, I, you know, I'm just thinking as you're talking about the security of, of data. Um, I have some some friends and business associates I know that are dealing with ransomware on a regular basis. When you and I were recently at ChannelCon, CompTIA's mm -hmm. fantastic event down in Fort Lauderdale, I was talking to a number of other um, managed service providers like myself, and they said they're dealing with ransomware every day. And for those who don't know what ransomware is, it's when you click on an email from somebody you know or perhaps don't know, but really it's not them. And there's an attachment to it. It might say invoice or something else. And you open it and it infects your entire computer and locks your data up and you can't get to it unless you pay them money. It's a real thing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But what it sounds like, Dina, is if people had really good cloud applications and their data was kept in the cloud, ransomware wouldn't impact that because it wouldn't have the ability to get to that data? Is that a correct assessment or no, depending on the kind of applications they're using? Yes, I think those consumer-focused emails that are going across that way um, would probably be reduced. The number one tip is never open a document if, or a file attachment if you don't know who it's from and you don't trust it. Um, but... Uh, you're right. If we're using data within, using platform software within the cloud that are highly secure, where you can communicate within those platforms with your your with your company and colleagues, uh, you will be more protected. And you know, I read an interesting stat just this morning that said that over 210 million dollars was spent just in the first quarter of 2016 combating ransomware situations. That's just such a crazy number. But to the people that are developing the ransomware, it's a business for them. That's right. That's, That's their right. business model. It, it's Exactly. And, and, you know, we could talk all day about what if they did their, use their skills for good, right? <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I know you're involved with Cloud Girls. You're, you were a judge for San Diego Women's Hackathon. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of fits along with the whole ransomware conversation. I mean, we're talking about the cloud. You're you're involved with these organizations. Why why are they having hackathons? Well, I think you know it's interesting. Companies like Apple actually have um, they actually challenge hackers to come up with ways to break their systems and to hack in and before the actual criminals do. And so one of the reasons these types of things are held and, and conferences for real coding hackers are held is, is as a way to keep them on the good side and as a way to reward them for making sure that platforms are safe, like the iPhone. 
Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, my my ex-husband was a huge software developer. I mean, one of the most brilliant software developers I have ever seen. And I was trained as a coder. I have a degree in computer science, and I learned how to program in five or six different languages, trying to go back to those days when I remembered how to code. And I used to watch him hack stuff, you know, for the good. And then he would tell people what, it, you know, what it was, and, and he helped me bypass a couple of things that I needed to get through to do some things with. And, but that's using it for good. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a beautiful, well, go ahead. Yeah. You know, I, I came across this survey yesterday because I'm actually in the middle of authoring an article for Forbes online about um, password security and password management for both entrepreneurs and startups as well as people in general. And I came across a survey that was done by a company called Psychotics while they were at the Black Hat Conference in Vegas this past month. And what they found was that it was something like <laughs> over half of the hackers uh, said that for, uh, for, for, for $50,000 and up that, that they would hack anybody's password. And that uh, apparently also over 90% believe that nobody's password is actually safe from hackers if you're a target. So it's, it's really an interesting time. And uh, there, there are really great things that we can do as individuals to protect our passwords better and, and make our own lives safer and reduce the risk. You know, I hadn't heard that statistics, but that was fascinating I think the big important part is if you're a target, but how do you know if you're a target? Right. Well, you're a target if you are, uh, basically anyone today is a target, right? Now, if you're a customer for a, for a big uh, healthcare company or for an insurance company or for a or bank uh, or, or a company like Target, you know, um, your information is all contained and being targeted uh, by hackers who are trying to gather lots of data about as many people as possible and uh, be able to have that information and either sell it on the black market or, or, or you know, hack it themselves at some point. It's really a, it's, it's really a war on, uh, it's a cyber war is what they're saying right now. It's easy for us to walk around every day and not think about it, but every time you go online and you allow your browser to save your information, save your password to your online banking or to your Amazon Prime account, uh, you are creating more and more vulnerabilities for yourself. I, it, it's so, so true. Chrome the other day just asked me if it wanted to save my credit card information to it. I'm like, no, absolutely not. Are you saving any of that information or my passwords? And we'll be back with more from Dina Moskowitz after the news. And I'm sure there's probably going to be something on the news break right now talking about some recent <laughs> craziness with uh, technology. But uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. If you're listening to the podcast, it was a really, really, really short break. If you're listening to the radio, you got to listen to the news. So um, I'm here with my friend Dina Moskowitz, Chief Executive Officer of Sazmax Corp based out of San Diego. And we were talking about cybersecurity and things you can do to to protect yourself. Um, Dina, to me, your company is really unique compared to a lot of other businesses out there. And, and the reason I think it's unique is because you're not pushing any one particular product, right? You're, you're looking, you're aggregating some of the 
best cloud software as a service applications mm-hmm. in the market. You're vetting them for um, for the people that will be selling them or buying them and creating one place for people to find the best of the best. Why did you decide to do that instead of a more traditional model? Well, I, from, okay, so let's go back about five years from now before I started SASMAX. And I had a data storage software company, an online software company. And when I sold that company, what I, what I look back on in terms of thinking about opportunities but what I could have done better and, and where I failed even though I succeeded, as we were talking before. And I recognized that had I, re- had I known as a business owner at that time of this online data storage software, had I realized that so many companies trust and go to their IT advisors to put their solutions together, right, and to bundle them up and make sure that everything is pulled together securely and safely, that I probably would have um, done even better in my company and, and, and taking my product to market through these IT solution providers, people like you, Laura, who were, was a managed service provider. And so as I looked at the industry as a whole, what I recognized was that so many of these amazing new software companies that are coming out to market are thinking that just by putting themselves out there and and going direct sales and direct email blasts that they were going to be able to reach everyone when the reality is that most businesses have no time to do a lot of discovery of what the best solutions and the newest solutions are but instead they trust their technology advisors and their their um their email marketing advisors and their social media advisors to help them to do the kind to, to select the right software to help their businesses grow and shift. And so that was my aha moment was that I needed to put together this new emerging sector of software companies with the traditional chain, the traditional value chain of people, uh, of companies like, like Laura's company, managed service providers and, and technology consultants who could then help the companies really adopt and use these solutions, these new softwares in the most efficient way. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I know that when I had my, my tech company, and by the way, a little aside, if people want to know more about me with my tech company, there's a great article about me when I, had, when I was interviewed recently on Forbes.com. Uh, John Warlow, Built to Sell, interviewed me about selling my company and what that was all about. So you can check that out. But when I had my tech company, it was so time consuming to find the right solutions for people. You know, you go to conferences, you go to all these different places. If I had a SASMAX to go to, it would have saved me weeks out of every year of searching to find the exact right applications for my clients. Right. And, and that, you know, that was another goal of ours is for people who were in the position like you of influence, who were out there servicing your clients day-to-day and making sure their, their business's technology is running, we needed to make sure that we could provide you with a place to go where you can find all that information easily and that where you're finding companies, these software companies, who actually respect and trust and want to work with you directly to, make a, to build a really good relationship and therefore uh, take these 
technologies in a smarter way to market. Is okay. I'm trying to figure out the best way to, best way to ask mm-hmm. this question that I want to ask. Um, when you were creating SASMAX and you were completely changing the way people were going to be doing business, how did you find the resources you needed to help you develop your business? Okay, that's a good question. Some of it is that you pull you you pick up really good people along the way, right? And um, you, you become resourceful, and you figure out what the resources are that you do need in order to take your company to the next level. And you know, when you're first starting out, it's obviously about finding the right developers and technology experts that can help you build your software. And it's also about validating the market opportunity and ensuring that you're not uh, just building this for your own, at, at your own whim, but that you're building it for people to actually use and to find value in. And so you start by doing, you know, finding the resources that can help you validate your business as well as build your, your core platform, at least for a software product. Okay, something you just said just really, really stuck out. Not that the other stuff hasn't stuck out too, but mm-hmm. you said you, you need to make sure you're not building for yourself, but you're building for the people that are going to be essentially using your right. your company. That I, I've encountered so many entrepreneurs that don't understand why their businesses are not successful and it's like they're they're not servicing their customers. They're not doing what their customers are saying they need or want. They're just like, well, they should want this. Well, they don't want that. Mm-hmm. So you're wondering why you're failing. So this is really good. But how do you manage to find out what it is your customers really want? So in my case, what I did was um, I pulled together two surveys, right? So I recognized that for SASMAX, I had two key uh two key demographics that I needed to uh, talk to, right? I have the SaaS companies, the software companies that are emerging and growing, and I needed to reach them and ask them if they would be interested in, in finding resellers and who would help them get to market. And then I also had the separate side, the technology advisors, like, like you, who I needed to reach as well and see, would you be interested in a one-stop shop? Would it make your lives better? What types of features would would make this a more valuable place for you to go and be able to partner with us? And would you be interested in selling more software if you have access to more software to sell? And so what I did at the time was I actually gathered as many uh, of the applications in the Google Apps Marketplace as well as as many resellers as I could identify in the Google Apps Marketplace. And I sent out two separate surveys. And I got to tell you, within 24 hours, um, the responses I got were overwhelming. And it was funny because I was on, I went on a, um, I had to fly from San Diego to Michigan during the, during the day where I had released the survey. So I basically sent the survey the night before, and I went on a plane, and I got to Michigan the next evening, and I turned on my computer, and I couldn't believe how much response and how much reaction there was. And my voicemail was overflowing. And I had resellers calling saying, are you really going to do this? Yes, I need something like this. This is great. 
people actually who felt passionate enough to pick up the phone and call me and say, what are you doing? And um, I even had uh, people who worked at Google picked up the phone and called me and said, hey, why are you contacting our community? Because we're having people call us and saying, you know, why aren't, why aren't we providing this kind of thing? So that information and feedback as quickly as it was gave me an indication that if I took this to an even broader population, that it made even more sense. So you actually asked, but you asked the right questions on the survey, too. How did you develop the questions that were on your survey? Oh, good question. I don't, all I can tell you is that I put myself in the shoes of each side, right? And asked them questions and thought about how this, how I would develop the product so that it would appeal to, appeal to them and really gauge whether or not they would be interested in certain features and functionality. And so I, it was more that I would ask the question, but then I, I designed the question as something that they could give me a, a rating, right? Like how, how interested would you be in, um, in, in applications that are, you know, that have to, do they have to be five-star, you know, ratings? And I, I, what, you know, I, to, to rank that between one and ten, how interesting, how, how important is that? How important is it that a SaaS company pay you at least a 20% commission? You know, how important is it for you to be able to find the right solutions, you know, when you're looking versus being uh, hit up all the time uh, by phone calls and, and email blasts versus going to one trusted resource? And so some of the questions are a little bit leading, of course. But if you word them in a way that they can get back to you with honest answers, it will help you productize what you're building. So it wasn't just a survey that they checked a box. There was opportunities for them to expand on the answer? Yes, I would say if you're designing a survey that um, always give them the opportunity in a question to 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 add more comments on the side because some people really want to give you a big opinion and you and it's very valuable others maybe want to just check off boxes and do it quickly um but if you if you give them an option of checking off other or add more information people usually who take the time to fill out your survey will usually give you more information I love that. And I've always found that you don't want to do too long a survey. If it takes them more than 10, 15 minutes, they're probably not going to do it. But we'll be right back with more from Dina Moskowitz talking about how you can build a company that your customers really want to do business with. One of the things that you're doing now that has also never been done before is you're creating um, the cybersecurity marketplace for SaaS, for resellers, MSPs to create a web store where they can sell specific cybersecurity applications and stuff like that. For my listeners who have businesses out there, what are some things that they need to be thinking about in terms of SaaS, cloud-based cybersecurity applications that they want, they should start considering to have in their business? Okay, good. I, I love that question because I think everybody can learn from it. And um, uh, let me let me try to explain. The first thing that everyone can and should be doing is having um, uh, having a, a small strategy in place 
for where you're going, you know, all of your passwords, master passwords, server keys, um, everything that you have in, in terms of, you know, access to technology products, including if, if you give your employees cell phones, make sure you have the ability to um, control uh, and, and log in and you keep the, uh, the master keys to everything. And then be careful about who you give those, that information out to. There's some really great password and administrative software platforms that you can use to manage all of that in a very easy way that you'll know that things are much more safe and secure. Do not transmit any information that is a password over email, over Skype, over text. Those are the most insecure ways and the most at-risk ways that you can do so. So from a cybersecurity standpoint, that's one of the most important things is just to be aware of and, and put some sort of management and, and make yourself accountable to being careful about all of your passwords and all of your, your, your access keys. Um, because right there, people get our, we are our own worst enemy sometimes, right there. And then otherwise, there are some really good products out there that can do uh, that can protect your email even more so that also there are products software products that can protect your website from attacks those are called distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks and you can you can easily get a software that for ver all you have to do in that software is put your uh, company URL in and it will tell you and warn you if there's any attacks that are about to occur so lots of threat monitoring tools that you can use that are very non-invasive, that are non-technical, that can help you be in control of what's going on with your, with your website, which is typically very important for small businesses. Um, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just thinking about that last one that you just said. I happen to know a number of people who've had their websites hacked, didn't know their websites were hacked, and they have downloads off their site. And their site was hacked to the point where these downloads were infected with bad payloads and those payloads mm -hmm. then infected other people's computers. So it's very important in, in my mind. And obviously for you too, you think this way, Dina too, you need to have the right security on your website and get the right people involved to protect it because you may not know your site has been hacked. These guys are good. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, they, they hide themselves. It's so true. And, you know, for many people who have, let's say you'll go and hire someone who's a website builder, right, or a website designer, and you give them the keys to your servers, right, and you let them go and you design, they design a nice website for you and they put it on, and let's say it's in WordPress, and then they put it on some hosting server. Well, if you're giving them the right to go start that and then they start billing you for the hosting, you never have access to own all of the code that is your that is your website, and if you know if they go away or something happens to them or they don't pay that account, you, you lose your website. So it's very important to even maintain control of your website. Make sure that they let you create the um, the server uh, user account and that you control the master keys. And then you give them access and let them contribute. But then you change your passwords when they're done. So it's very important to know that it, it, it seems like it's easy and you want to trust people. But sometimes even, you know, uh, the, the most well-intentioned 
outsource people may accidentally, you know, breach or, or disappear or go on vacation and then you're stuck and, and you're at, you know, you're stuck with a, a without having your website. Yeah, I've seen that happen to a number of uh, former clients of mine when we took over the tech for them. They didn't even, they weren't even listed on the account for their websites and the web guy held them hostage and it was just a nightmare. Lawyers had to get involved. Okay, so we talked about protecting your website. We talked about password protection and things like that. Um, What else are some foundational, say, pillars of things that people need to have for their security? I think um, depending on the type of business you are, the security, uh, it, it, it extends further. You know, there's, uh, there are things called mobile device management software, which is great to have if you're deploying many devices across, across your employees or, you're, you know, you have, uh, you know, a car service, for example. Um, there is networking security devices, that, uh, security software for endpoint protection, which means that at every level that your technology and that your company is doing business, that every device and every software is being uh, protected and managed and monitored. Um, very important to back up your data, right? Make sure that you have some sort of disaster recovery plan. Do not, <laughs> a lot of small businesses that I talk to like to just use their email as a, as a place to keep all of their data. It seems that, uh, especially for small businesses, they don't think about the significance of keeping all of your data in an organized uh, in an organized system, a document file sharing file system, and then to back that up on a regular basis. So, uh, from a security standpoint, it's a it's a disaster recovery uh, type of um, security strategy, but very important. You you. We, we see lots of um, small business and consumer-focused backup software companies advertise on TV, um, but there are also ones that are built for stronger uh, businesses to really deal with compliance. And if you're already dealing with HIPAA compliance or financial uh, compliance, with your clients, you probably already are taking some of these measures into effect, but don't discount the fact that if you send your data outside of your network, that you are creating a breach right there yourself. It's a really great thought to leave everybody on. So we're getting close to the end of the show. Dina, how do people reach out to you? How do they find out more about SASMAX and you? Sure. So SASMAX is, uh, uh, it's spelled SAS. At software as a service, Max. So S-A-A-S-M-A-X dot com is our website. And when you go there, you can see lots of different software applications that we've vetted that are very good for all types of business applications from file sharing to unified communication, phone service, to um, business apps such as for, for finance or invoicing or for marketing all types of applications there. And um, to reach me directly, you can feel free to send an email to Dina, D-I-N-A, at sasmax.com, S-A-A-S-M-A-X.com. Awesome. And I happen to know that Dina responds to all the emails at all hours of the day and night. <laughs> I'm like, do you ever sleep, Dina? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know that for a fact because I've been up all night and 
emailing back and forth with you. So thank you so much for being on the show with me today and sharing your wisdom with my listeners. Laura, thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. So everybody, Dina shared with us some really great lessons about growing a business, developing a business, and finding out what your customers want. And she also shared some really great tips about failure and moving forward from failure and how failure really is not a failure. And that's a conversation we've had on this show a number of times, but I love her unique perspective about it. She's also a contributor to Forbes, so feel free to Google Dina Moskowitz and you can find out all sorts of amazing things about what she's doing with uh, technology, with women in tech, and just just in business in general. She's one of the most brilliant people I know. So I love talking to her and sharing her wisdom. And if you need help asking the right questions, I have a new round of 100-day mentoring starting up soon. And I only take a couple of clients on for that because it is a full-time intensive. If you're interested in working with me for 100 days, you can do so. Just reach out to me, laura at laurasteward.com. Remember, the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking today? Have a great day, everyone. Listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.